You know, I'm getting a little sick of this stuff. First, they did it to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Then they did it to Blood Feast. They're starting in on Suspiria. And now the latest victim of an attack by zombie college professors is this movie, Carnival of Souls, tonight's movie. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a great movie. But this is about the fourth or fifth time this has happened. First, somebody makes a perfectly decent drive-in movie, like Carnival of Souls. It was made in 1962 in Lawrence, Kansas. It was made for real people, normal people, people who love zombies, ghosts, and dancing bloody corpses, but when they first put it out, nobody understands it. No, no, wait, let me correct that. The people that go see it, they understand it, but the critics don't like it, and the theater owners don't like it, and the distribution company thinks, well, it's kind of a strange movie, and the church doesn't like it because it seems to be making fun of religious people, and so it just kind of dries up and peters out, and the original investors lose all their money, and then 10 years later, it turns up on the Late 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 Show, and you're watching it, and you say, hey, look at that. He ripped that off from George Romero in Night of the Living Dead. But then you see that the movie was made in 1962, five years before Night of the Living Dead existed, and you go, bingo, cult, classic. All of a sudden, people want to know, who is this guy? And so then a bunch of guys start doing research, and they find out that Carnival of Souls was made by this guy named Herc Harvey, and this was the only feature film he ever made, and it stars a gal named Candace Hillegoss, and this was the only starring role that she ever had. And then you find out that Brian De Palma stole a lot of the stuff he used in Carrie from Carnival of Souls. And then the next thing you know, oh my God, no, please, not that. The New York Times is writing about this movie. See, it's like that time Vincent Canby of the New York Slimes the most boring man alive, he decided to review the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 11 years after it came out. And then somebody that works at a film museum, they decide to go back to Lawrence, Kansas and find Herc Harvey, the director, and see if they can't get a perfect 35-millimeter print of the movie. And then it gets its world re-premiere at a film festival somewhere. In this case, the guy who rediscovered it was Gordon K. Smith, and the festival was the USA Film Festival in Dallas. So before you know it, you got 900 guys in suits paying 500 bucks each to watch this movie that in 1962 they would have forbidden their children from seeing. Do you understand me? And in fact, about a year ago, Carnival of Souls was shown in Lawrence, Kansas for the first time in 27 years as a benefit for the Lawrence Film Commission, whatever that is, the Lawrence... And Herc Harvey was there, and John Clifford, the writer, was there, and all the original investors were there, and it was sponsored by the Lawrence Convention and Visitors Bureau. Now, this is great, Herc. Hope you make some money out of the deal. But Carnival of Souls had its real premiere at the drive-in. It will always be a drive-in movie. I'm sure there will be books written about it. Candace Hillegoss will get a bunch of movie offers, although I don't know how old she is now, but maybe Herc will even make a sequel. But let's draw the line with this one. Let's not let Siskel and Egbert and Leonard Malton and the UCLA Department of Film claim this one. These are the same guys that call I Spit on Your Grave the most disgusting movie ever made. You know, and why do they say that? Because I Spit on Your Grave is not old enough yet. It hadn't been reviewed by the New York Slimes. Hadn't been shown at the USA Film Festival. So for all the people who watched Carnival of Souls at the drive-ins of America and didn't need some goony professor to tell them it was a great movie, let's reclaim this one for the good guys. It's a zombie movie. It's not about existential angst. Okay, it's not a symbolic parable, it's a zombie movie. In fact, the star of the movie, Candace Hillegoss, she's the most beautiful zombie ever to appear in a zombie movie. And the fun of the movie is that you're never really sure when she's being a zombie and when she's just being a ditzy stuffed shirt church organist. Because think about it, doesn't your church, church organist look like a zombie? All right, no breasts, 
because it was 1962, of course, 19 dead bodies, approximately 15 zombies, one motor vehicle chase with a watery crash, zombie bus tour, and uh, this movie is in the Drive-In Hall of Fame, a definite four stars. Check this sucker out, and then we'll visit some more after it's over. And one more thing, Herc Harvey, the director, remember this is his only movie in history, watch for him. He is also the number one zombie in the movie. Okay, roll it. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the barely awake and just showed up Peter. Uh, See, that's the noises he makes. And and the Cecil himself, the Cecil. I'm talking through a surgical mask because... I actually, cons- I actually considered doing a topic on pandemic movies, but I was told that that's in really bad taste right now, so we still might do it. If you guys want to, you know, you're going to be quarantined for a while, maybe you need a little something. So you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. You're going to be quarantined. You're going to need to be on the internet. And right now, Pornhub is offering Italians free premium Pornhub. So what you need is a VPN. So you go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. That'll take you to Nord's site. Through that, you'll be able to get 75% off of a three-year plan. Now, th- they'll protect your data, they'll encode your data, and you can change where you're from. All of a sudden, buongiorno, you're Italian, and you get the free <laughs> Pornhub that. access. It's, it's, it's a genius. So you go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. It helps us out. It helps you out. It'll get you through this. What I want to talk about tonight is how movies age. You know, a lot of times we see a movie where we go, oh, that did not age well. Or when you see something that maybe blackface or something like that, and you go, you see a movie and you go, ooh, wow, that, ooh. So let's talk about movies that got reassessed. Usually this is a movie that was initially shat upon and now is considered a classic. doesn't always work like that, but in a lot of cases it actually does. When it comes to reassessment, there, we have to deal with the, the object first of a cult film versus reassessment. Because in a lot of cases, a cult film is something that bombed initially and then found its audience later. I don't think that's the same thing as reassessing a film and just saying it was too far ahead of its time or something like that. So we're not talking about cult films. We're not talking about The Room, films that are become cult films. We're not talking about Forbidden World or anything like that. Forbidden Zone, I mean. I was recently watching something, it's an, it's an old Joe Bob Briggs bit that I played here at the beginning, 
was about, it's from the 90s, about the rediscovery of Carnival of Souls. You know, Herc Harvey's mm. only movie. Carnival of Souls, he made it in 1961. It totally bombed. It's the only film he ever made. He It was a total independent film. And then 30 years later, it's on the New York Times number one cult film list. It's being considered a classic. It's, it's being put out on videotape, digitally remastered. It's having theatrical screenings. Well, you guys were kind of 30 years late on that, weren't you? You know, he lost his shirt on that. He lost everything. The investors lost all their money. Maybe you could have discovered Carnival of Souls in 1961 and not in the 1990s, you know? Hell of a time to reassess the movie, huh? This happens a ton, and uh, sometimes it's not so much when um, a director is really hurting for it. Like, obviously, The Thing didn't do well. John Carpenter's The Thing didn't do too well when it came out, and people reassessed it and it became more of a... uh, It became more of a cult classic later on, but then you look at other filmmakers and other authors and creators, like, look how long it took for, like, Lovecraft to be discovered. Like, he, he died penniless and was dead for years until somebody discovered the the brilliance of his work. That sucks. But then you have the lower level stuff like, well, the thing didn't do too well when it came out, but then people discovered it as a great science fiction horror film from Carpenter later on, and it became more of a cult movie. So that's like, that's a mild side effect. And then a massive side effect of it is like the Carnival of Souls thing or anything that Lovecraft would make. So this is one where it's not so much that when Siskel and Ebert originally reviewed Alien, they called it basically a, a 50s monster movie in space, said it wasn't really special, and said that uh, after there was a wave of other science fiction movies that had kind of raised the bar, they said that a movie like Alien, eh, you know, it was it was well done, but it wasn't all that special. Two, I think it was 2001. He readdressed it and said that, uh, you know, he's watched it again and recognized its brilliance and how, you know, how it's a, uh, a, a terrifying horror film and deserves credit, you know, all the credit it got. And that was only long after everyone else had already come to that conclusion. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't allowed to have their own opinion, but I think that we do have a lot of people that will just jump on something and call it crap, and then they'll only change their opinion when they're massively outweighed by by, uh, people saying the contrary like they also gave uh, the thing a terrible review there was a lot of older movies older going all the way back to like the 50s and whatnot the paranoia flicks they would just get crappy reviews at the time and then they would fail and then years and years later someone discovers it the word spreads and everybody checks it out and sees how fantastic it is so it's kind of uh, it's kind of scary and sad when you have a lot of reviewers like that that really will have that much sway that will just destroy a film that will get reassessed later and people love it. But also I think that there are some films that just are ahead of their time. They don't hit well when they first come out. People, for whatever reason, they don't watch them. And then I don't, it's not so much that they, they did badly because people thought they sucked at the time. It's just that not a lot of people saw them for whatever reason. And then later on they become discovered and they blow up and they get a a massive fan base. Well, a cult fan base because of it. Well, but then you also have the weird, thing 
with the changing times where the movie doesn't change, but the times change. Like L.Q. Jones and Harlan Ellison's A Boy and His Dog. When it came out in 1975, it was considered misogynistic and mean-spirited. And then when it was re-released in the 80s, it was a feminist film, and it was no longer misogynistic, and it showed the power of women. Then in the 90s, it was misogynistic again, and now today, it's a woman's movie again. The, the film more didn't things change. change. I just gotta say, the more things change the more they stay the same. Like hilarious because like you said, it was, it was reassessed like various times. It was like, it's, it's anti-woman. It's pro-woman. It's anti-woman. I mean, I guess it'll be, I guess, uh, you know, in another 10 years, it'll be pro-woman again. That one is one because it's, a Boy and His Dog is a relatively underground movie. Your average person on the street is not going to know who that is. They're also not going to know who L.Q. Jones or Harlan Ellison are. It's so weird to me that that's the movie that keeps getting either assigned assigned to being attacking the feminist movement. It It's funny because it was a movie that was made not attacking anybody. Like It, it, was, wasn't... Just a, it was just a nihilistic, post-apocalyptic film. It, you know, based off of, you know, Harlan Ellison's writings. And it's funny when things like that come out that are perceived as an attack on, you know, feminism or whatever. And it's like, no, this really had nothing to do with you. It's it's mm. just a movie. Harlan, Harlan Ellison's like warped mind. All of his stories have like kind of a warped, dark, cynical kind of sense of humor to it. Like if you read uh, I Have No Mouth or I Must Scream or even Boy and His Dog or really most of his stories like there's a very nihilistic presence to them and there's it's not feminist and it's not anti-feminist it's just Harlan Ellison you have other movies that obviously every movie's not going to hit everybody the same something like Fight Club Fight Club just died remember that did not make money at the box office was just eviscerated by the critics for instance Roger Ebert's review Fight Club is a thrill ride masquerading as philosophy, the kind of ride where some people puke and others can't wait to get on again. What's interesting, however, is that the movie has absolutely no subtlety whatsoever. Or the New York Daily News, hardly groundbreaking, more than a bit of a dud, a chic indictment of empty materialistic v values that fizzles. The biggest fascist big star movie since Death Wish, a celebration of violence in which the heroes write themselves a license to drink, smoke, screw, and beat one another up. It's macho porn. The sex movie Hollywood has been moving towards for years in which eroticism between the sexes is replaced by all-guy locker room fights. Women who have had a lifetime of practice in dealing with little boy posturing will instinctively see through it. Men may get off on the testosterone rush. The fact that it is very well made and has a great first act certainly clouds the issues. Fight Club was not well received, guys. I think they kind of missed the point. Like, oh, God. And a still, by, still by a country that mile. Too. That wasn't the movie at all. I, that always cracks me up when you when you see somebody who will watch a movie or they'll read something, you know, read a book or whatever, and they'll have a take that is so far out in left field. You really wonder if they only read half of it or watched half of it and just came up with this conclusion because that is so far removed from what the actual movie is <laughs> which is why i said the film got reassessed when it came to video people saw this is a brilliant movie yeah and then again it's been reassessed again as an incel misogynistic migtow alt-right nazi right-wing movie and if you like it you're toxic you're this you're problematic like go yourself already again the more things change 
the more they stay the same. But at the same time, I will defend one criticism, not of the movie, but of some of the movie's fans. There are people who out there who legitimately think Tyler Durden is the hero of the piece. And it's, no, guys, he's not something to emulate. He's the bad guy in the movie. It's sort of like the people that idolize Scarface. You're the problem with this, not the film. Yeah, there are a lot of times where that'll come along where they'll they'll idolize the bad guy. And it cracks me up, too, because there's so many instances where you'll watch a movie with something like Payback. It's bad people fighting amongst each other. And you're like, well, uh, I'm confused. Like, who am I supposed to be rooting for? And it's like, well, really, they're all bad. So you're you're just kind of like you don't need a good guy specifically in a movie. You don't need somebody to root for. You need to sit down and watch the movie or the, you know, the material that is being presented to you and enjoy it as per, you know, you feel that way. But it's like when you're seeing something like that, when you're seeing something where it's like, okay, this is obviously the bad guy, but he's doing things that you agree with. Well, that doesn't necessarily make you a bad guy. It just no. makes it there is a bad guy who is doing things that, OK, yeah, you agree with for whatever reason. That doesn't mean that he is the good guy. That just means he's the bad guy that is doing occasionally good things as well as doing a bunch of bad things. You you have a lot of movies that are examples of this. Like, look at Miss 45. Like, you're, you are kind of rooting for her. She gets, like, raped at the twice beginning. within the first, uh, what, 10 minutes? And then she starts doing questionable things. She starts shooting people that aren't even guilty, but you're still rooting for her because she's awesome. You're rooting for Robert De Niro's character, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, even though he's a nutcase. You just like his vibe. It's it's a character study. American Psycho is a character study of just a totally awful person, but the performance of Christian Bale is so engaging. In Fight Club, obviously Tyler Durden is the bad guy. That makes it very obvious from the beginning that he's a bad guy. He's a very interesting bad guy, and he's also the imaginary friend of the narrator, and, and, and how engaging it is to watch it. You don't necessarily need to get along with these people. You don't need to like them as people. You need to like the movie. It's all about how well made the film is like and and pain and gain is another example no one's a good guy in that movie even the people who get kidnapped like uh tony like, like like monk's character is is a piece of crap but you also have the people who like oh joker really spoke to me this movie's finally <laughs> speaking <laughs> to no guys if you're identifying with joker in the joker movie you need help like, he's not are, a hero there are messages in that movie that basically show an oppressed working class, an oppressed mentally disabled class of people and whatnot. And that's like, that is true. Like both America and Canada do this. And there's a lot of, a lot of propaganda where they're like, no, we're not doing that. But it is true. Like a lot of healthcare things are being cut. A lot of, uh, People aren't being paid as much as they should be paid. It's true, but it's like Joker himself is a character, even though he does do things, you know, like killing the yuppies that are harassing that girl. Like, sure, you agree with that. But he also is extremely violent, extremely mentally deranged. And you do need to realize that he is a villain. If the character speaks to you, that's a bit screwed up. Like, he shouldn't actually be speaking to you. I hated that movie, but we're going to move yeah, on. Yeah, you hate everything. That's fine. We'll move along. <laughs> so everybody loves Predator from 1987, except the critics in 1987. God, yeah, it was crapped on. Arnold Schwarzenegger fights an outer space monster in a third world jungle. The monster never has a chance. Neither does the jungle. Neither does the audience. 
did they actually watch the entire movie? Nope. The Predator decimates the entire team, and Arnold just barely gets out of there with his life. Yeah, he gets the crap kicked out of him. Yeah, just, the Predator was like toying with him, and he just really, wait, just wait, guys. Got I got a, I got a couple. Of, I got a couple more here. Hold on. The L.A. Times: Predator is an ominous, high-tech Stone Age mixture. Ominous because the production is high-tech and the script and its values and mentality are Stone Age. It's in the bare-bones action-adventure model that producers Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon used in The Warriors and The Driver. Chic action fables where nothing impedes the streamlined f- flow, neither logic, originality, nor a single naturalistic moment. Sometimes the form works, but in Predator, they've hit nada. There's a difference between Walter Hill's minimalism and vacuity, which is what we get from Jim and John Thomas's screenplay. It's arguably one of the emptiest, feeblest, most derivative scripts ever made as a motion as a major studio movie. There's no need to do a mad movie, a mad magazine movie parody of this. It's already on the screen. Or the New York Times. Predator is alternatively grisly and dull with few surprises. Though the creature's face, when finally revealed, is an interesting claw configuration where its mouth ought to be. The, ha- the habitat is a-, is a good deal more interesting than the action, since it contains both floricity-looking palm fronds and large, deciduous trees that have produced some autumn leaves. So he's saying that the the jungle is more interesting than the film, that the cinematography is better than the actual movie, or Roger Ebert's review. The action moves so quickly that we overlook questions such as, one, why would an alien species go to all the effort to send a creature to Earth just so like a swing from trees and skin American soldiers? Or two, why would a creature so technologically... Yeah, yeah, it's hunting, dummy. Well, Roger Ebert didn't think so. Well, Roger Ebert is a f***ing moron. Both Ebert and... What was the other guy? Who was the other Siskel. guy? Siskel, right? Yeah. This is why you got face cancer and half your face fell off and you f***ing died. Piece of dog shit, doxing pile of crap. Go f*** yourself. <laughs> why do they come to Earth? Because it's hunting f***ing soldiers, you yeah. dumb f***. Didn't they clarify Dying. that, like, multiple times during the film? Yeah. Like... Again, these they're not what this is why people have started going and watching YouTubers for for more valid movie reviews because they're finding people that actually pay attention and they still like movies. Yeah. When you get a lot of these people that write for the New York Times and Siskel and Ebert and whatnot, they got to a point where they just started to hate movies. And if and it they wasn't just get paid off, they get paid off to like write negative reviews. They're like, hey, we don't want this movie to do well. Crap on it. I don't believe I that. I think a lot of I, these people are I just snobs. Who I, didn't I, like I the absolutely movies. believe that. I don't think that now this came out a while ago. I don't think that they get paid to give negative reviews. However, there are certain people, there are people who came out and let it leak. They were massaged to give Disney movies better, like better reviews. Like they were going to, they would give it a review but they kind of give it like a middling review because they don't want to lose access to all the big things so maybe they'll say that captain marvel is you know it's pretty good because they don't want to lose the capability of getting a pre-screening for end game that that is an issue that's something that's come up remember back in the magazine days, cinema fantastique lost all of their early access because they kept reviewing movies honestly so warner brothers paramount and them were like you're not allowed here you haven't given our last eight movies good reviews they're like well your last eight movies suck well then you don't get into this one harlan ellison dealt with that a lot in his book watching about how when he wouldn't give good reviews the next time something from that company came out he would be on the no-no list But, but but there's also something like sometimes 
the entire industry feels that a film should not be made by a certain person, such as in 1960 when Alfred Hitchcock made Psycho. Everyone was like, they, they called Hitchcock slumming. That why are you making the, I mean, with the film slasher, the term slasher film didn't exist yet, but like a slasher movie, that they called it a low budget job. The New York Times called it, there's not an abundance of subtlety or familiar Hitchcock bent towards significant and colorful scenery in this obviously low budget hatchet job. Slow buildups to sudden shocks, reliably melodramatic acts, but contested Hitchcock's psychological points. Everybody was against Psycho. It got destroyed by the critics and then becomes a certifiable classic and a touchstone in not just the horror genre, but in film itself. But at the time, everybody was predisposed to hate Psycho because (laughs) they felt Hitchcock is better than this. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's I think that is like the most telling quote that this entire episode will be because people that are like, oh, everybody's too sensitive nowadays. Things are people get offended too easily. No, people have been getting offended too easily for like 50 years. Blade Runner. When Blade Runner came out, now admittedly that was the sort of compromised cut with the bad ending and the scenes that shouldn't have been in the movie. But when Blade Runner came out, it was just eviscerated by the critics. Nobody liked it. There are, I love Blade Runner, but I cannot deny there are some major story problems in every cut of that movie. Harlan Ellison's review in the comics journal of the movie points out all. He, he just has a litany of story flaws that I can't argue with because yeah there's a lot of in this movie that does not make sense when you think about it for a second but it's still an amazing movie all of the initial reviews when that came out in 82 were this movie looks fantastic but there's nothing here Roger Ebert said this is the most beautiful movie he's ever seen it's too bad they forgot to write it others the New York Times said Blade Runner is a stunningly interesting visual achievement but a failure as a story another another review from I think it was the LA Times said that that the movie all robots because there's no acting in the film. Another says it's it's all these monolithic skyscrapers and sky taxis but there's no people in the movie. I can kind of see what they're talking about especially with the 82 cut, but damn that's some harsh criticism for a movie that is by every measure a classic. It's it's crazy. I I can see like <sighs> The movie does have story problems. I cannot deny Ellison's comic journal review is dead on with all of the things he points out that make no sense when you think about them for a second. But at the time, you're like, okay, that makes sense. It's only after the fact you go, well, wait a minute. In general, I don't know, because I mean, Blade Runner is one of my all-time favorite movies. I could see people kind of having issue with the 82 cut, and I also kind of chalk that up to that movie was so far ahead of its time that I can kind of understand people really not completely getting into the vibe of it. That's something taking a long time to really sink in. They're wrong when they're saying that there's nothing going on. But I think that it's it's understandable that some people wouldn't really be into that back then. Blade Runner, obviously people were wrong. Every critic was wrong. They clearly, and not to sound pretentious, they just didn't get it. Probably it was too too intellectual for them, probably. Like, it's it's very obvious there that, that, that they felt challenged by it and they got mad at it, so they took a dump on it. See, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that because, like I said, even I, who loves the movie, 
have to admit there are a lot of story problems. There's a lot of structural issues. There's a lot of things that don't make sense in the movie as it's written. It makes more sense if you've read the novel. Oh, we we all have structural issues. Everyone does. Mental, physical, emotional. If anything, you should be able to connect with Blade Runner better because of that. Okay, well then, you mentioned John Carpenter's The Thing before. Roger Ebert called it a barf bag movie, the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. It was also this is called... why your face fell off, asshole. It was also called Instant Junk. <laughs> Vincent Canby called it a wretched excess. Alan Spencer called it cold and sterile. Alan Spencer, this is, is cold, cold and sterile, like your ball sack, you piece of Newsweek. Astonishingly, Carpenter blows it. There's a big difference between shock effects and suspense and in sacrificing everything at the altar of gore. Set Carpenter sabotages the drama. The thing is so single-mindedly determined to keep you awake that it almost puts you to sleep. The New York Times. John Carpenter's This Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that, that is fun as neither as neither one thing or the other. A virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects with the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated. Time. Designer Rob Bottin's work is novel and unforgettable, but since it exists in a near vacuum emotionally, it becomes too domineering dramatically and something of an exercise in abstract art. Do I need to keep going? They're literally just trying their hardest to be like word vomity in, in their... Again, like, it's obvious that these people are either being massaged to write bad reviews for movies that are great because they want to keep them down or they're being paid off to do it. Like, they're trying so hard to be, like, quote-unquote intellectually negative about these films. Like, just shut the hell up. You clearly liked it, but you're trying your hardest to make it sound like it's bad. They're wrong. Like, how much more wrong could you possibly be? The movie yeah. is brilliant. The movie... Uh, it's now seen as brilliant, too. It's now seen as brilliant. But, well, I mean, I it the score got nominated for a Razzie for worst score it's seen as one of the best scores because it's that perfect minimalistic thing. The The film is just, I mean, how many times has it been re-released and how many times have people just dissected it and fallen in love with it all over again? It is a brilliant film. It is just something that it hits every note perfectly. The paranoia, the effects, the directing, it's so freaking good the fact that uh, these people as peter even said you know they're doing they're vomiting out these word salads because it's a way of uh, making themselves feel better and also a lot of these and i hate continuously shitting on ebert he's somebody who hates horror naturally he's going to give this kind of movie a bad review. And I think that's something that people also, unfortunately, didn't take into account at the time, but they are now. When you have somebody who doesn't like a particular genre and they're crapping all over it, well, they're going to crap over the greatest or the worst. They're going to see it all as the same. They're going to see no difference between something like Taurus Trap or The Thing. And I'm not shitting on Taurus Trap. I like it. But it was just the first like kind of B-movie that I could think of off the top of my head. Uh, yeah. They're not going to see the difference. They're just going to see, oh, people died. It's horror film. It's scary. This is garbage. Uh -huh. So I think that that's a large part of that. Whereas, like, I don't like Westerns. I've made that very clear. So yeah. whenever I've done a review in the past, before it, I would say, look, 
I don't like Westerns, so take that into consideration while you're listening to me review this film. I put my bias out there first and then let the people watch it and decide whether or not, okay, I agree with that or I disagree with that. This is a guy who just doesn't like this particular genre. Whereas with Siskel and Ebert and with a lot of other reviewers, they hated horror, but they never said openly that they hated horror. So people would just generally take that as, oh, this is a bad movie, not so much, oh, this is a movie that they didn't like because they don't like this genre. But there's also something to be said for a film being so far ahead of its time, the critics literally didn't even know what to make of it, such as Metropolis, which we all know is one of the technical marvels of filmdom. How many things that we now take for granted did, did Fritz Lang invent for this movie? But at the time, it was called a technical marvel with feet of clay, foolishness, cliche, platitude, and muddlement, and muddlement about mechanical progress and process in general. Cliche? Yes. How is anything about that movie cliche? It was. It's also called unconvincing and overlong, laid out on a on a terrible Teutonic heaviness and an unnecessary amount of philosophizing. Again, uh, uninspired word vomit. Again word vomit We're as soulless as the city critics. of its tail most critics i think 90 percent of critics need to be strung up and just have mutated tarantulas just crawling all over them and ripping their balls off or whatever genitals they have for this crap that they come out with word vomit word salad bullshit what the f- are you talking about cliche what the f- was cliche about that film what the f- is cliche about metropolis what the hell were they talking about there was nothing like that at that time again they're just holding shit out of their asses that is ridiculous I completely understand if somebody came out and just didn't like it. If they said, you know, I see everything that went into this, but for whatever reason, I just didn't like it. It didn't appeal to me. But for someone to come out and say that it's cliche, a movie like, like if you watched it now and said that it was cliche, you wouldn't, you'd be looking at it from the perspective of everything that it's influenced from now. So of course it would be cliche, but this is the movie that created all of the cliches. This is the movie that has been replicated and the movie that has influenced countless other science fiction films. So if you're looking at it from the perspective of now and saying that's cliche, well, you're just not looking at it from the proper perspective of history. However, if you're a reviewer back then and saying it's cliche, you're being dishonest to your audience. There was nothing that even came close to being cliche about that film. It It created all of those things. But then there's also, now, this one you guys are probably going to attack me for, because while I don't agree with the critics, I've never been a fan of the first Friday the 13th. You know, I like some of the films in the franchise. Even when I was renting these from the video store as a teenager, the first film, I don't think it works. I watched it again recently a couple of years ago. I think it's a disaster. The only the only one in the series that is the first one is better than is Nine. At the time, it was really hated by the critics. Gruesome violence. I'm, I'm, in which... I'm sure they were they were given their it's misogynistic, it's woman hating, it's well, this, they... negative, blah, 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 blah. Cisco and Ebert doxed Betsy Palmer. Yeah. They gave, they gave out her address and told people See? to send her hate mail. Uh, multiple times they've done this shit. They did it for Friday the 13th. They did it for Silent Night, Deadly Night. All of you that revel in Siskel and Ebert and say, oh, they're great. I love them as critics, all this You're garbage. They're garbage people. Ebert deserved to have half his fucking face fall off and die. He was a piece of 
I don't think Fuck anyone. All of you. I don't think anyone deserves cancer. Like, no. No, I. I, I I'm not gonna. He, I'm not gonna he, co-sign. He that literally. One. No. You know what? I'm gonna say yeah. it. He went out of his way to try to ruin people's lives. <laughs> that guy. Come. I. I, I kind of. I'll be with. I'll, I'll be with Josh for the the rare occasion. I don't like. I don't like Ebert at all. I'm kind of. <laughs> I don't really like Siskel that much. But I don't think that being. I'm not being gonna a co-sign shit, this. You know. Being a shitty. <laughs> Being a shitty asshole movie reviewer does not warrant somebody getting face cancer. Well, no. that's fine. I guess uh, I need to get some uh, some negative press in the show every now and then. <laughs> well, here, here, here are some of the things said about Friday the 13th in 1980. Gruesome violence in which throats are slashed and heads are split open in realistic detail is the sum is the sum content of friday the 13th a a, a sick and sickening low budget feature that is being released by paramount it's blatant exploitation of the lowest order produced and directed by sean s cunningham through george georgetown productions there is nothing to recommend about this ghastly effort which simply details a series of grisly murders the script by victor miller introduces a group of young people who are working to reopen a summer camp goes on to describe the the plot cunningham seems obsessed with shock value which is the only thing he achieves during the 91 minute runtime the performances are credible, so although no real work, acting yeah. is required, and the technical production is slick, including Barry Abrams' photography and Bill Freda's editing, which Dr. allows Valley the full impact of the and mutilations. It, was, it did its job at being shocking, by which so mercifully, it did its job well, but still they have to crap on it. A silly, boring, youth-geared horror movie. The cinematography shocking. Low budget in the worst sense with no apparent talent or intelligence to offset its technical inadequacies, Friday the 13th has nothing to exploit but its title. Low-key direction. After building terrific suspense and turning over the audience's stomachs, the film doesn't know quite where to go from there. The movie sags and the ex- the movie sags and the expectations are built up to a sour bit. A oh shamelessly God. bad film, but when Cunningham but but then Cunningham knows this, this is sad. Yet they f- praise it they call it boring and flat and ugly and it doesn't go anywhere yet they say that it's shocking yet they say that it's slick looking and then the same instance the same sentence call it boring and flat and great do they do they even know what they're putting down do they know what they're actually writing do they understand like what's actually coming out of their brain as they put pen to paper or you know fingers to type like this this is ridiculous that they can literally in the same sentence oh it's a it's it's slick looking and shocking but it has no value it looks like crap it's just awful and it's like you can't compliment something and then act like it's a pile of crap but I then think, again, this is this is ninety percent of critics anyway, so whatever. I think what what they're doing by that is they're trying to say that you had the talent, you had the ability to make this look good, and you did that, but you didn't add any substance. I think that's why they're actually using the dichotomy of that is you clearly had the talent and you chose not to use it. That's so stupid. Friday the Thirteenth is a good looking movie. It's very well shot. I think it's very lot lot of color, a lot of contrast. End of the film has a ton of mood. The, these people are just idiots. It's it, it was a very you know what then too. It was a very conservative time as well. So anything that was horror, anything that had any violence in it, trash. It's garbage. It's immoral. It's uh. It's it's like god damn it like screw the mpaa screw the pmrc it's the these are the these were the social justice warriors that would be equated to today like again the more things change the more they stay the same even though nowadays it's a lot more hip to be liberal left or whatever 
yet we still have this very right-wing conservative ideology where if something has a lot of violence or a lot of sweary words or a lot of nudity, it's considered, it's exploitation, it's misogynistic, it's sexist, it offends me. It's fucking pathetic how, how much things have not changed. It's not surprising how much they crapped all over it. But in the end, this is a case where it didn't matter. They crap all over it all it wanted. It still went on to be a massive blockbuster. Yes. It made crap tons of money. And even Paramount, like, was embarrassed by it. They tried to get rid of it, but it kept making money. And at the end of the day, they're still a business. So they're embarrassed by it, but they're like, all right, we don't like this, but we're going to make another one. And then we're going to make another one. And oh, wait, we, we killed off Jason, but they still want more. All right, find a way to bring them back. Make another one. It's it's just this is a case of where the audience decided. The audience, you know, flipped their finger up at the but, uh, but critics. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and play devil's advocate here. The audience also decided that the Grown Ups movies were blockbusters as well. Does that mean that they're undeniably quality too? Because they're not. The well, audience we'll doesn't see, always um, equate quality, dude. Well, the Grown Up movies. No, I wasn't. Came, came out a few years ago, and it's already been decided unanimously by most of the population that they're. So they're not going to become cult classics the way the Friday the 13th films did, which at this point are over 30 years old and young audiences of today still love Jason. So, Josh, shut the f*** up. (laughs) No, because I think at the time, that's exactly what they were thinking. They were thinking, this Friday the 13th thing, this is hopefully going to go north. Obviously, they didn't know this was going to become a franchise. And the Grown Ups movies are continuing. They're making another one. But no one likes them. Clearly like actually, people do where they because well, they keep going to the theater to see them. Enough no people one... do, sure, but they're not gonna be again, I'm gonna say they're not gonna be classics in the way that, you know, the Friday the thirteenth movies are. They're, they're not gonna be remembered thirty years later as anything but like crappy Adam Sandler vanity projects. Which is sort of the way, it, it's weird because one of the things we've been talking about all night is reassessment. Now, obviously, you can't see into the future at the time these reviews are made. Now, nowadays, everybody loves Richard Stanley's hardware. It's hard to find a negative review or someone who does not think 1990s hardware is a genius movie. Problem is, in 1990... Nobody saw that. For instance, the New York Times. Hardware is a sci-fi horror film of such dopiness that it seems certain to become a cult classic somewhere. Movies that are so insistently silly often have the effect of seeming to expand the mind after midnight, which may or may not have something to do with the metabol- with metabolism, if not with controlled substances. Nothing much happens in this film, but the little that does happen is, is repeated for something over an hour. The robot attacks Mo and Jill together. It attacks them separately. It eats a fat man who comes to call. When the point of view is of the, is of that of the robot, the audience sees what seem to be X-ray images. The colors are intense, with an emphasis on red. The sound effects are very loud, and the special effects that represent the robot are not bad at all. The music never stops. Watching hardware is like being trapped inside a video game that talks dirty to you. Oh, I can't even know. You know what? That that review I think just gave me an abscess in my tooth. They're wrong. I mean, well, they're right about it looking good. It is. It is a movie that kind of. I don't want to, it's not a minimalistic movie, but it is a very focused story. It is a, for the most part, a one location shoot. Like once they get into her apartment, it's really, that's where the remainder of the movie is. And I think that's one of the problems with the, like occasionally there will be a movie that comes along where I know critics will complain about how, you know, well, nothing really, you know, nothing really changes. It's like, well, this was a focused story. It was in one location. 
Mm-hmm. Can you not pay attention? Like, do you not sit inside your house for like multiple hours? And yet when you watch a movie, it has to ban the globe. It can't just take place in like one location. That always boggles my mind. I don't mind when a movie takes place in one location if it's handled well. If it's like, okay, like they were in her apartment. She was going into different rooms. She was, you know, talking to different characters. It was not boring. It was fascinating. It was a brilliant movie. I That's another one of my all-time favorite movies. It's just depressing to see that they couldn't look beyond that. They could, you know, they saw how attractive it was and how how well it was put together, but they couldn't get past the fact that it was just a more or less single location film. And kind of a horror film and and a bit violent and stuff like that. So they had to put on their morality hats and be like, well, this is wrong. This is garbage and it's totally immoral and it made it made me feel feelings that I shouldn't be and just shut up just shut the f- up god god damn I remember when hardware first came out I could not find a positive review of it that's the thing then you get into the late 90s this becomes a video store classic and yeah. then you start seeing I, I think hardware is a classic example of a film that got reassessed it just didn't work when it came out and then people saw what it was. One of the biggest one of these would be Big Trouble in Little China. Destroyed upon release. Although, yeah, because no I, one got it. No one understood that it was meant to be a satire on action films. Actually, one I, I, I did find one insanely positive review from somebody who's going to shock you. Harlan Ellison loved it. He said... <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. He, 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 said, he said Big Trouble in Little China had some of the funniest lines spoken by any actor this year to, produ- to produce a cheerfully blathering live-action cartoon that will give you release from the real pleasures of your basically dreary lives. That actually doesn't surprise me at all. If there's anybody that would be, at that time, like, intelligent enough to understand what it was trying to do, it would be Harlan, even though he hated RoboCop, and that sort of pisses me off a little bit. I am very happy to know that he at least enjoyed Big Trouble in Little China for what it was. Roger Ebert's review, though, special effects don't mean much unless we care about the characters who are surrounded by God damn it. And in this movie, the characters often seem to exist only to fill up the foregrounds. This is straight out of the era of Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu with no apologies at all to the usual stereotypes. This movie is much better at introducing a character than they are at developing one. Though it is oh, action-packed, is it? spectacularly is it really? edited, and often quite funny, one can't help feeling that Carpenter spectacularly is... Spectacularly edited, oftentimes quite funny. ...is Looks squeezing good. the last drops out of a fatigue like genre. God. God damn it. I can't even finish. I can't stand it. I can't fucking stand. It's it's the same goddamn formula with each one. Looks really good. Looks fantastic. Very funny. Cleverly edited. But I don't like it. you. Sorry. Okay. I'm back. I'm done hulking out. They completely missed the whole point, which happens a lot of times where something like this that comes on, that is an obvious spoof on the old uh, Chopsaki films and I mean you've got the you got the all-american going in there and kicking ass and and it's like it's so gr- I mean it's a wonderful movie I adore Big Trouble in Little China but my god did they just completely miss the entire point of the movie um what it was clearly meant to be was a satire on the 80s action hero like you're meant to think that Jack Burton's going to be like the big hero guy but he's such but a doofus actually- He's kind of a doofus, and it's it's actually his little Asian friend that's like the real ass kicker. What it really is is probably the most faithful readaptation and movie of a Green Hornet film that we're ever going to get. 
Well, let's stick with John Carpenter for a moment. They Live didn't get necessarily negative reviews. There were a lot of criticisms of They Live when it came out, such as the Chicago Reader. Carpenter's wit and storytelling craft make this fun and watchable, although the script takes a number of unfortunate short shortcuts, and the possibilities inherent in the movie's central concept are explored only cursory. Or the Boston Globe. Once Carpenter delivers his throwback to the 50s visuals, complete with plump little B-movie flying saucers, and makes his point that the rich are fascist fiends, They Live starts running low on imagination and inventiveness. Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Since Mr. Carpenter seems to be trying to make an, a real valid point here, the flatness of They Live is doubly disturbing. Kill yourself, Janet. Well, I'm not going to co-sign that one either. <laughs> Cecil, you want to co-sign that one or not? No, I think, I think you're on your own with that one. Pete's being edgy today. Is its crazy inconsistency, since the film stops trying to abide even by its own game after a while, it's just John Carpenter as usual trying to dig deep with a toy shovel. The plot for They Live is so full of black holes, the acting is wretched, the effects are second rate, but he's actually trying to say something. Again, though, I've been saying it for every single critical review of this, every critic's like opinion on these films, is it's just, it opens with, well, it looks good. I think it was a good-looking movie. I think it had some ideas to it, but word vomit, word vomit, word vomit, word vomit, word vomit, word vomit. Like, it's just all of these little technical terms to try to beef up the the review of it, and it's like they might get a little more notoriety and they might get a better paycheck if they crap on the film and crap on it in, like, as intellectually or as, like, humorously as they can, which, of course, this is what gave us shit like Nostalgia Critic and Nostalgia Chick and Linkara and these buttholes that do nothing but like crap on movies. And they think, oh, it's so bad. I'll make fun of it for how bad it is instead of appreciating them for what they are. Like, you know, what what uh, Mr. Trachenberg does or what Brandon does, you know, or myself do. We, we try to actually I appreciate crap on movies, movies constantly. All I do is crap on movies. Yeah, but you, you you crap on some of the ones that do need to be crapped on. I'll give you that credit. Some of the Some of the stuff you hate deserves to be hated but what i'm talking about here is that like every one of these supposed quote-unquote critical analysis are just these blowhards trying to like use as many words as many adjectives or whatever to describe how but overall it falls flat in the idiosyncrasies of this and blah 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 god go go get fucked in the mouth well, then let's end on the greatest movie of all time. The, some original reviews from Star Wars from 1977. Oh, 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 and this, my this my greatness will, will tell you what I've been saying the entire time. No matter how, things, how much things change, the more they stay the same. Because people hated Star Wars back in the 70s, too. So it does not make it misogynistic and racist or transphobic or whatever the f- if you didn't like Force Awakens, what was it, the, the new Sith one or Rise of Skywalker or whatever? Because there were people that took a giant, massive, steaming dump on the old Star Wars movies, too. It's a shame that a story this archetypical should have been done in such a stupid way. Yes, stupid. What intelligence was applied to this film was applied only to the realization of the superficial. There is there is no more thought involved in the special effects than has ever been expanded on what the special effects were supposed to mean. The story of Star Wars is monumentally stupid, relying upon coincidence and the stupidity of people who could have never attained the positions they hold in if they were indeed this stupid. All right, so what is this movie trying to do, and and how well does it succeed? It is supposed to be very juvenile. well. 
It is supposed to be juvenile escapism full of gosh wow wonders for young fans with wide eyes who've left their minds at home. Sheer fun without a trace of intellectual challenge. Even as such, I think the script leaves a great deal to be desired. Kids especially, I suspect, will like their action-adventure gripping and realistic, and Luke Skywalker's triumph comes much too easily. Serious lapses in logic abound, all on the side of the good guys who constantly can't seem to get into any real danger. Blah, 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 blah. I don't even need to go on. Good lord. Get a life. Get a girlfriend. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they're they're wrong. They they can't enjoy just the the whimsy that it brought, for lack of a better word. But I think that they uh, they just couldn't see that it was throwback to the old serials, um, yeah, like like Flash Gordon and stuff like that. Exactly. It was very much inspired by that. Lucas has made that abundantly clear over the years. Yeah, and uh, he just brought it, uh, you know, with his version to a new audience and people really fell in love with it and obviously it was one of the biggest franchises in the world till disney it all up they they really made something magical out of that and the fact that they couldn't look beyond the fact that oh dumb sci-fi movie (laughs) things different it's just the same old thing no it again revolutionized cinema yeah it broke ground it definitely did it changed the way that things were uh, were made. I mean, Christ, how many Star Wars knockoffs were there? Oh my like, God! Even, even just in the in the late seventies and and throughout the eighties, like if you if you look at them, like it's insane how how much of a pop culture iconic film that this movie was. Like, even to this day, they're still trying to make Star Wars knockoffs. What you also have to remember is these reviews had no idea what the movie was going to become. Of these course, were pre so, these were reviews so for be- these reviews were from before the movie opened. They had oh no idea God. what was going to be happening. Well see again, it's a lot like uh it's the same thing with the way like Rotten Tomatoes is and the whole tomato meter thing. It's like again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Critics back then would see a advanced screening of a movie and they would have their little thoughts of what they thought it was going to be and how they thought it would hold up over the years. Oh, the dumb kids science fiction movie and didn't have any character development. And then it becomes the biggest franchise in the fucking universe owned by Disney and Marvel alike. So you're wrong. So what it comes down to is, and these are only some examples. I had a much longer list with so many more movies, like The Golden Child, Exorcist 3. There's a lot of movies we didn't touch on that yeah, have Golden been critically reapprised. I, 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 I want the knife, please. <laughs> I, I, love, uh, I love Golden Child, by the way. I do I too, but critics... Great, uh, I do it too. Makes a fantastic, it makes a fantastic double feature with uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Ironically enough, John Carpenter turned down directing The Golden Child to make Big Trouble in Little China. That makes so much sense. Wow. (laughs) Because he was was the first choice, but he didn't like the script. Wow, so I really am on point with thinking it's a great double feature. You would be surprised, maybe just due to the lack of Chinese actors, how many Chinese actors are in both movies, too. (laughs) Holy sh**. You never noticed that That's before, true, did you? Actually. That's really true. When you look at critical reassessment, like I said, there's plenty more we could talk about. I just wanted to use some examples of some movies that are considered either great or classic today, but I specifically want to avoid that whole cult thing because a cult film is not the same as a critically reassessed film. I think a lot of people are going to be like, well, what about this? What about... You're talking cult films, okay? That's a big, big difference. 
Maybe your favorite movie is totally being just railroaded today. Maybe Mm -hmm. in 20 years it'll be reassessed. Sometimes this goes the opposite direction, too. Like, I know this is about to set Peter off, but the 89 Batman is now looked at as, why did we love this movie so much? Oh, I know. It it keeps flip-flopping back and forth. But now it seems like after the Nolan movies, people have been going back and going, wow, this isn't nearly as good as I remembered. So sometimes yeah, critical. Like I, I am seeing that. I'm, I'm also seeing people that are, it's the opposite where people are like, it's time to admit that the Tim Burton Batman is the best Batman. There's also people writing articles about that. But there's also a weird thing where genuinely bad movies are somehow being reassessed. It's almost like, like a troll sort of culture. <laughs> You would not believe how many articles I've seen in the last five years about why Alien 3 is the best film in that franchise. And no, you're wrong. That's a genuinely bad movie. Stop trying to make something out of genuinely bad films. There are people who are now trying to say Highlander 2 was revolutionary. No, it wasn't. I, I think there's this, this sort of there's this sort of troll mentality. Oh Let's take the God. most hated movies and we need to make sure people know these are the best ones. Fuck you. There's this wave that's been going where people are taking genuinely bad films from the past and trying to elevate them as, well, you just don't get it. Oh my goodness. Because no, on. Alien 3 is one of the most genuinely sh- movies ever made and i will not listen to anyone who tries to defend it enjoyed it i've enjoyed it since i was a kid i get why you don't like it but i do think it's kind of weird that critics are now trying to be like it's the best alien movie uh no it's not it's the new contrarian thing yes take something that is fairly universally hated try to put your own spin on it prove why it's brilliant i don't know you you get views for whatever reason When it comes to critical reassessment, do you think it's usually more the fans who maybe didn't see a movie or maybe as the fans grow up? Or do you think it's more the times? Like we pointed out with Boy and His Dog, how the movie didn't change, but the environment around the movie did. Do you think something like They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, movies like that became what they became because the times changed? Or the people changed. There were audiences that enjoyed it, and then that bled over to it doing well, video sales, and it becoming kind of the cult film that it was. And I think it's more of just pretentious critics that try to dump ass on it because science fiction and horror is just... It's never going to be revered by the critics and by the Academy ever. Like, it's obvious. Like, you know, if, if a horror movie does well, the Academy either will deem it as a comedy or as a psychological thriller, a thriller movie. They, they, you'll, you'll never hear these big-time agencies refer to anything as horror if it does well. The way the entertainment industry works, as much as they try to be all liberal and all social left and all this stuff, deep down, they're always going to be rooted in hardline conservative nature, which is why horror movies continue to be and always have been dumped on, which is why music with sexually charged or violent lyrics are always dumped on. PMRC, the MPAA, and nowadays, social justice warriors. It's always going to be the same driving line of, I don't like it, nobody else is allowed to like it. And as much as they try to, because obviously in the um, in the 80s especially, it was a lot more openly right-wing and whatnot. And, but obviously a lot, a lot of the audience were very open to the movies of John Carpenter and all these films that were coming out. And 
they very much enjoyed them, even though the critics were crapping on them. And nowadays it's the same thing, even if it's now more socially acceptable to be more liberal and more socialist and all this stuff. The entertainment industry is still incredibly conservative and still incredibly virtuous. I'm more moral than you and all this crap, which is why the same is still happening and which is why it's so hypocritical with the SJW types because they're literally acting exactly the way groups and organizations like the MPAA and the PMRC were acting. I just think it's you should look at these movies again through different eyes. And like I said, it sometimes goes the other way. There's a lot of movies I loved as a kid. I, I watch today and go, w w was I functionally retarded? How did I like this? So <laughs> critical reassessment can go both ways. On that note, if anyone wants to reassess the Cecil, where would they find him? Find me at uh, goodbadflix.com as well as goodbadflix on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. Go watch Hardware and Blade Runner. They are brilliant. Where can people send all of their Roger Ebert hate mail to for Peter? <laughs> that, that you can send me as much as you want, and I will give you the same response. His face deserved to fall off uh, at Twitter and Cinematica, Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, of course, 1201beyond.com with other fine programming and at Patreon at Cinematica. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.